Marissa Lee here, and I'm so excited to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. In these episodes, our brilliant lineup of guests will include healthcare practitioners, voice educators, and other professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to empower you to live your best life. Whether you're a member of the voice community or beyond, your voice is your unique gift. It's time now to share your gift with others, develop a positive mindset and become the best and most authentic version of yourself to create greater impact. Ultimately, you can take charge. It's time for you to live your best life. It's time now for A Voice and Beyond. So, without further ado, let's go to today's episode. When someone feels as though they are being silenced, this can have tremendous physical and psychological consequences for that person, feeling ignored or not heard. This week's guest is Serena Sterling who is a certified life coach and author of the book, Pain, A Love Story. In this episode, Serena shares her story regarding the chronic physical and emotional pain which she endured as a result of feeling ignored at various times in her life. Serena tells us that in her childhood, she began to complain about imaginary pain to gain attention from her family. And after months of pretense, this eventually manifested into juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, a condition she still suffers from today. While working as an international journalist, Serena was based in New York's financial district during the September 11 attacks. As a result of the trauma she experienced during those attacks, she was later diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and was told by her doctor that there was no cure. Serena's life began to spiral as she started snorting cocaine in her kitchen to help her cope and hold down her job. Not wanting to accept this as a lifetime fate, she discovered mind-body healing techniques that transformed her mental, emotional and physical health. Witnessing what seemed like a miraculous transformation, Serena decided she needed to share this with the world. She later received a master's and a doctorate in clinical psychology in order to bridge the gap between science and emotional health. This is an extremely candid interview with Serena Sterling as she not only shares some of the darkest moments in her life, but she also offers advice to those who feel as though they are being silenced, as well as how we can all listen better. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Welcome to the show, Serena Sterling. How are you? 
I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a total pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to be here. And you're currently living in Utah. Have you always lived there? No, not at all. This is my first time ever living off a coast. I've never lived in the middle more of the US. I've lived in New York City, Philadelphia, Paris, London, Sydney, Australia, even. Um, Wow. Seattle, Portland, a few small towns. That is a lot of moving. We might have to talk about that a little bit later and find out why. But you hold a master's in international journalism. You have a doctorate in clinical psychology. You are a certified life coach and the author of the book, Pain, A Love Story. Now, these are a number of different fields that you've ventured into. And tell us about the journey that led you to transitioning jobs and your roles and your career path. But let's start going back and and doing a, a background search about your childhood and maybe some of the things that happened to you as a child have kind of led you to where you're at now. Well, I would say that I was always interested. I was more of an observer in childhood. I think I I watched what other people were doing a lot. And um, I was a really good athlete, like star athlete of my class. And um, I don't know that I really had strong direction growing up. But my grandmother always told me she thought I'd be a veterinarian because I loved animals so much. But then I I just I really liked psychology and English classes in high school. And then when I got to university, I studied English literature and I still didn't really have a focus. But then I decided that I loved magazines and maybe one day I would create a magazine kind of like for people overcoming adversity, physical, mental, emotional. And so then I ended up in journalism school in London because of that insatiable thirst to live in other places. Yes. And what inspired you? Was there something that happened to you as a child that created that fascination for learning more about that spirituality or that psychology? Yes. And that's a lot of what I talk about in my book is that I developed and I was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at the age of nine. But from what my memory serves me and my my personal experience is that I pretended to have pain that never existed because I felt like the only way to get attention from my parents was if I was sick and I wanted something to be visible so they would have to pay attention to me. And so I basically, my birthday is in January. And so in the beginning of the school year in, in September in the US, it's like I was eight years old. And so I was like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to com- complain about pain and they're going to have to pay me attention and then I'll get the attention and then it'll be great. <laughs> and so I got into this, this place of just, I would pretend like I had a limp walking down, walking away from the school bus. I would really tell my, my teachers <laughs> after school sports, like, gymnastics or like, I can't do a handstand, my hands hurt or in ballet, like, oh, this hurts. And then after about two and a half months of going to doctors and them all telling my mom, like, she's fine. She's in great health. And I was like, no, there's gotta be something wrong with me. And then I actually, by like November, my feet and my joints did start to hurt. And I was admitted to children's hospital. And then I got the diagnosis. So why did you feel the need to 
attract attention? Did you feel that you weren't getting any attention from your parents or was it all in your mind? No, I really do think that because I had a, a friend of my parents who I met when I was, I, I mean, I, I've known her since I was really young, but I saw her again when I was studying journalism in London. And I remember her telling me she would come visit and she would always say like, how's your relationship with your brother now? You know, he was so mean to you. He would order you around, he had a broken leg and be mean to you when your parents never seemed to back you up. And so I don't think it was my imagination. I really do think that I felt like he was favored and no matter no matter how much I did, I mean, he was two and a half years older. So of course he's going to be stronger and faster and a better athlete and better at school and all those things. But I just felt like I was so overlooked that instead of telling my parents like, hey, pay attention to me, they would have been like, oh, of course we pay you attention. You know, it wouldn't have mattered. So I concocted this grand idea to, because I felt like it didn't matter that I was the star athlete. Nothing mattered. I just wanted as much attention as my brother seemed to get. So you felt like you weren't being heard and your way of having attention because you didn't have a voice. So you had to find another way to draw attention to yourself. And it was through these. So would you have called it like hypochondria that actually ended up leading to some real ailment or you were just simply making it up? Like, did you feel that you had hypochondria as such? No, if anything, maybe it was like a somatoform disorder or psychosomatic or, but it's kind of like, it's, I think it's the nocebo effect. I think that the placebo effect is a lot more common where, you know, you're told like this pill is going to help you. And so you turn on your own ability to heal. Whereas I turned on this ability to cause pain in my body. Mm -hmm. And when we were talking yesterday, you still have the rheumatoid arthritis. You showed me your hands and I thought, wow, after all these years, it's, it's still a real thing. And from that point of time as a child, and then you went into your teenage years, you were sharing with me that you found yourself in another situation where you didn't feel as though you were being heard or you couldn't use your voice. And that was through some surgery that you had. Right. So as a lot of children who develop arthritis, they end up having jaws that recede inwards. They don't, the jaw stops growing. And so I tried a few years of braces to help with a bite. My teeth didn't come down together, but then the braces would come off and the bite would. It, so anyway, the I had to get a, a five-hour reconstructive jaw operation that left me swollen in my face for eight or nine months when I was 17 years old. And and then, and I was telling you about going to speech therapy because I'm so fascinated by what you do. And I just felt like it was just so humiliating to stand, to sit and like look in front of a mirror and make these CH and SH sounds yes. because <laughs> I still had a lisp and my mom said it was unacceptable. Like what are colleges going to think? And I just felt that I was still somewhat invisible. Like she wasn't really seeing how emotionally difficult that experience was going through the jaw operation and having my whole face change. And now here I am sitting in from this mirror, trying to make my appearance look good when I still didn't feel like I was being seen or heard. Wow. And how was the rheumatoid arthritis during that point of time? Did it, was it feeling worse or was it just stabilized? 
I think that it was stabilized. I think that I had gone into remission by age 14. I had tried a lot of different medications, none of which worked very well. Mm. And I think at one point I just got exasperated and I decided to go into more alternative healing. I mean, it doesn't seem alternative anymore to me to go see a chiropractor, but I've gotten more help from that than from medication. Yes. And do you feel that those experiences that you went through as a child, that they had a greater impact on you as you went into adulthood? Absolutely. Because in some of the work I do, some of these mind-body stress reduction techniques, I can still trace whatever might be triggering me in the present back to the past of healing from that operation or feeling like my parents didn't see me and having to concoct this story and things like that. And so I mean, people, I I imagine my clients as well, just get very tired of hearing about proverbial onion, all the layers of, well, it's just another layer of the onion. This layer has no core, obviously, (laughs) but, but we're all, you know, a work in progress and, and I'm still, I'm still finding things out about myself that I kept hidden away from those years. Mm. And then you started working in New York. There was a stage you were working in New York. And you developed chronic fatigue syndrome. And that was as a result of the 9-11 attacks. Do you want to share your story around that with us? Sure. Yeah. So I, I actually was getting tired when I was studying journalism in London because I felt emotionally, I felt a little disillusioned. I wasn't sure that journalism, I knew somewhere that I wanted to do something more, but I wasn't sure what it was. So there was that aspect, the emotional aspect. And then the weather wasn't that great. As yes. most people know. <laughs> in England, you don't yes. see the sun very often and it's just kind of cold and damp and gray and rainy. There was, I was in my early twenties. So I was drinking and not really having a very good diet. And so it was kind of like a Petri dish for just something to grow like Mm -hmm. fatigue. And then I, I landed this dream job of mine. I got an internship and then they offered me the job to be one of their editors at spirituality and health magazine. But that magazine is located in the financial district. It's like it's on Trinity place. It's near, it was near the world trade center. So I was on my way to work on 9-11 and I got stuck in the subway. And by the time I came out, the first tower had already collapsed. And I feel that it was such an overwhelming traumatic experience. And I didn't know how to even identify on my own, the emotions I was feeling, Mm -hmm. let alone talk to other people and know how to feel better by talking about it. So I feel like I just repressed so many emotions and exacerbated the fatigue And then I had to work from home for five months because they were cleaning the office. It took five months to clean. Like all the ash came in through the the vents and everything. So yes. So then I went to my doctor because I was just, I would do the dishes and then feel like I had to take a nap for two hours. I mean, it wasn't feasible to keep going at that rate. Was it something that crept up on you or did you suddenly start feeling this fatigue? Because I know a lot of people, it is a thing. Chronic fatigue syndrome is a thing. And I suppose for those of us who have never suffered from it, it's very hard to understand and what you're feeling. So what were those symptoms and how did you cope with day-to-day life? It was very difficult. It was, I didn't really have, I only, I had a few friends in New York City. My brother, 
but my brother and I aren't close. So all that big brother. (laughs) (laughs) Right. My, my parents were basically pressuring him to invite me out to, you know, happy hour, things like that. But I always felt like I'd been like brought along as a third wheel kind of thing. Yes. So for me, as I mentioned, it already like started, I think when I was in London and then, and even before 9-11, I remember coming back from lunch and kind of slumping in my chair to take a nap because I was so tired, but then it just kept getting worse and worse. And I'm not really sure what the diagnostic criteria was back in 2001 for chronic fatigue. I think that perhaps maybe my doctor just kind of like heard my symptoms and lumped me into chronic fatigue because mm-hmm. I had debilitating fatigue and tiredness. And I also had joint pain, but I already had joint pain from the arthritis. So I think there probably are some other symptoms that I I didn't have, but those were the main ones. And it's just, you know, I, I was already very driven. I got my master's in journalism, or actually I was finishing my master's. I got an extension to do my dissertation, but I felt like I wasn't productive. I couldn't focus. All I wanted to do was just kind of like lie on the couch and sleep. Wow. What a way to live. Did you ever feel depressed through that time? Because I could imagine if you don't have that energy to get through a day, it would play on your emotions as well. Yes. I, I was depressed. I didn't realize that I had PTSD as well. I had nightmares a lot. Every time I heard a siren, I was thinking, oh, they they found people. They there was this huge underground mall at the World Trade Center. They've all they're all just like surviving on the the food from the restaurants. And I would just have these fantasies. And I would, but then I just was kind of like, what's the point? Why even bother? If something like that can happen right in your own backyard, like what's the point of going on? And so I became very apathetic and depressed. Did you see a therapist to help you no. through that? No, that's one thing I mentioned in the book also is that I, in my family, seeing a therapist was very, very much looked down upon. It was kind of like only really sick people see therapists. And so, I mean, I, I saw a school counselor once in high school for 20 minutes and I was so ashamed I left. Oh. And, oh, I think, no, I was, I was interviewing some of my former editors for my dissertation. And one of them, I think she saw how depressed I was. And she was like, I highly recommend this psychologist I saw at a difficult time in my life. You might want to go. And I did. And I hated it. And I I just basically, I felt like I was circling around the emotions and just going into what I saw 9-11, but I didn't really feel anything. And I was like, that's not for me. But I was working with a life coach at the time. And it was helpful, but it didn't really get to the underlying root causes of why I was feeling so depressed. Mm. Now, you share in your book, and also you shared with me that one of the ways you felt that you could deal with the chronic fatigue was to snort cocaine. Now, I find that kind of bizarre only because I think, well, how do you arrive at that decision? (laughs) And where do you go and find it from? And how do you decide or relate the two together? Okay, cocaine's going to fix my chronic fatigue. It does sound like there were probably other things I could do, but I feel like I had already exhausted all the coffee I could do. I 
I would, you know, I basically was eating like carbs and sugar because that would give me a burst of energy, but then I would crash. And so I was telling my friend that I was having all this fatigue and I was like, Hey, why don't you just, you know, I remember being in college university and pulling on all nighters by Mm. taking Adderall or Ritalin. And I would just do it like, you know, a few times and I still did really well on my papers or whatever I had to get done. So I told him, I was like, look, can you go and find some Ritalin or Adderall? Like I will pay you like just, and he tried apparently, but he was like, I couldn't get it. Like I was thinking there's so many universities. I'm sure some kid wants to give up their Adderall. Look for someone (laughs) shady. (laughs) And he was like, well, why don't you try Coke instead? And I was like, no, I don't want, I'm, this is not to get high. It's to stay awake. But I was desperate because I felt like another few months of being unable to focus and just wanting to sleep. And I would lose the job that I'd worked so hard to gain. And so I did, I did lines of cocaine in my kitchen in the morning up until about 3 PM so that I could sleep at night. I didn't do it on the weekends. I did this for about a month and a half thinking like, this will give me some time until I can figure out what I should be doing. And then I just, I always knew that it was some sort of like slippery slope. I had imposter syndrome, even though I did not put that label on it. I don't think we had that label back then, but no. For spirituality and health magazine, writing health articles while doing cocaine. How divergent from my goals is that? That's very healthy and that's very spiritual, not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. So you sound like you were very disciplined. With your <laughs> cocaine use. That's a good way to put it. Yes. Did it help you? And so because you came off it, obviously you didn't become addicted to it in, in that time. But did it help? Uh, yeah, it did help. Because wow. also besides giving me that boost of energy, where and it also, I mean, <laughs> I drank a ton of water and I got my work done. And I also, it helped because it numbed me out to my emotional pain that in the months, month or two after 9-11, I just simply did not want to feel. So I would, I didn't know that I was an empath until I was in grad school and I heard this word, but. A, A what? Sorry. An empath. What's an empath? Where you can take on the emotions of other people. Okay. Right. Yes. From, from the word empathy. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I would be on the subway and I would see people and I, I would just, I would feel awful because I could see the terror and the sadness and the anger, everything that everyone was feeling in New York mm. City after 9-11. Basically when I was using cocaine, I didn't have to feel it because there's a very strong numbing effect. And so I just, for the time that I was using it, I was like, oh, great. I can like stay awake. I can go to my meetings in Soho once a week and, you know, show that I'm not falling asleep, (laughs) listening to the, whatever they're talking about. And I can also numb out. Perfect. Did you ever ask yourself, why me? Like, what am I meant to learn through all of this and go into some kind of victim mentality? I don't think I, I don't think I went into the victim. I think that sometimes when I've been depressed, I can definitely feel I'm in a victim state. And it's hard to acknowledge that because when you're depressed, you can feel very justified in feeling that way. However, when I was in grad school for psychology, 
a supervisor once told me that people who are depressed are actually more realistic <laughs> oh, <laughs> because they don't okay. have the same filters that other people who are not depressed. And I, I see that. Like if we we really pulled our, our filters off and were actually aware of all the crappy stuff going on in the world, I don't think anyone would want to create relationships or leave the house. But in terms of the victim mentality, it was kind of like, okay, it's like, well, like I was saying yesterday, like no one's going to save you. Even like you can go to therapy and people can help you. But at the end of the day, you have to pull yourself up and decide like, I'm not going to live my life being depressed and anxious and terrified of what could happen. I just have to live my life. And so I feel like in terms of lessons, I, I feel like I decided I was there that day. I'm going to just learn what I can from this. And by going and finding after deciding to stop the cocaine, I, I found a doctor who could help me. And by going through her protocols with the mind-body stress reduction techniques, I really did learn like, what is my body holding on to? And it just it released so much that it took me out of whatever victim place I was in mm-hmm. and helped me like put one foot in the front of the other and start making goals and plans again. Yes. So to get to that point, wow, there must have been a little bit more resilience in you than what you actually anticipated or expected there was because that's a big thing to go through and to experience to be there the day of 9-11 and to come out and to be able to tell your story. How's your chronic fatigue now? I don't have it. Um, it oh, I mean, oh, basically, I, yes. my, the doctor in New York healed me in like three weeks, maybe a little bit longer here and there. But I mean, it wasn't more than a few months and I felt 100% better. However, it did come back when seven years ago, when my dad passed unexpectedly and I cried for a week and thought I was over it. <laughs> mm, yes, yes. <laughs> you know, even being like, you know, an expert in this mind-body stuff and how emotions get trapped in the body, I was just kind of fooling myself. And little by little, I just got more and more tired. And, and I had to heal from that again by going through what I do, what I know how to do, which is express your emotions when you feel like bottling them up. Mm. So let's talk about that now. You have body mind healing techniques that you use, that you've used on yourself and you have a practice. How's it transformed you emotionally and physically using these techniques? And what are these techniques that you're using? Right. So some of them, the main one is called, well, what I do is I blend everything that I've learned over the years. One of the base ones is called neuroemotional technique. There are practitioners all over Australia, the US, Canada, but I bring in also things from Psych K and energy psychology and other modalities. And I bring in my training and education from clinical psychology so that basically the idea is that something's happened in the future. There's or not the future, the present, like there's a relationship that is troubling, or there's something at work, or you have pain in your back that came on kind of out of the blue. You didn't fall. You didn't have an injury. It's there. It's becoming problematic. And mm-hmm. my belief is that something is going like pain, especially will be so troubling that you have to look for answers. And a lot of times 
Western medicine doesn't cut it. Surgery, yes. medication, it doesn't help. Yes. So then what do you do? And so these modalities get at what is underneath it. So when I work with someone, when I work on myself or have a colleague work on me, like the pain is just an entryway for finding out what are the emotions and the relationships and the memories that I've stored that I've never fully processed because either they were too overwhelming or it was just too ter- terrifying to be vulnerable or things like that. That's really interesting because just you talking about that now, about oh, 10 weeks ago, I was in Melbourne. My mum was, was actually very, very ill at the time. And I used to go for a walk along the main strip. Maybe it was like a 45 minute walk. And I do a lot of walking. I've never had lower back pain and it was on the left hand side predominantly. And one day I just took off on my walk and this day my husband was with me and all of a sudden my lower back just went, just seized up and the pain was incredible. And I tried to kind of stretch it out and it was you know, I got home from the walk and after a couple of hours, the pain left and I thought, oh, that's okay. It must have been something that I'd done. Every time I went walking, from that point on, the back would start playing up again. Same place, never, ever had a back problem before. My mum ended up passing away. I, we knew she was going to be passing. And it's only now, two months later, that the pain is starting to subside. And it's actually, I feel that it's almost 100% gone. And a part of me, and I did go and see an osteopath who did a little bit of dry needling. To re- He said that that area was really tight. And I do some stretching every night, put a heat pack on it. It's almost gone. But it was really interesting what was going on in my life at that time and how the pain just appeared out of nowhere. And I think, you know, my, my intuition was telling me that that was, that pain was manifesting as a result of maybe some grief that I was feeling. And now as I'm going through that grieving process, that pain is starting to, to leave my body. Is that something that you believe in? Is that how you would deal with the patient? Just say, if I had have come to you at that time, what would you have done with me? I do believe that your body was communicating and and grief to me is a very, I don't grieve. I don't think I grieve that well. I think that it's a very difficult, especially when you lose someone close to you, like your mother. And sometimes even recently, I mean, I feel like I was processing all the emotions and dealing well with, I was kind of like a nomad and driving all around the mountain states of the US for six months and thinking like, I'm handling this well, I'm totally fine. And then I developed this random symptom out of the blue. And I was also home visiting my mother who was getting better over a sickness, pretty serious sickness, and just so many different emotions and so many concerns and worries. And I feel like if you had come to me and said, my pain has come out of the blue, I'm here visiting my mother, I know that she's not doing well. I would say, let's look there. Let's let's look at, mm. I would use the pain as the entryway. I wouldn't go down the rabbit hole of, of what, I mean, I would probably focus on that as well. But first I would look at the pain 
and find out. And it's, and so I'm using muscle testing or applied kinesiology as a way to access uh, the physiology, like what your body is trying to say rather than because oftentimes the mind gets in the way and can basically kind of like think and know what to say before. Whereas with these techniques, it's, it's a way to pinpoint what the emotion is that you've stuffed into your body or you're not doing it consciously. No one's doing this consciously, but it's more like something. It was so much grief. It was so much knowing that a loss is coming can Mm -hmm. sometimes bring in and bring on some symptoms based on the fact that the emotion is, it's too much to handle. So we take that energy and it goes into our body. Right. So when someone comes to you, you start diagnosing them through the body, like the kinesiology, and you ask the body to speak to you. Do you then, from that point, start asking questions around what's going on in their lives? Or is it purely from the physical aspect that you diagnose? Well, I'm I'm not diagnosing anything per se. I'm more I'm looking for answers in terms of emotions. So the physical things, say your back pain, for example, I would I would connect that to something. There are three categories that I go into money, love, like money is the material things like money, love, job, career, finances, stuff like that. And then love is like, you know, people in your family, friends, spouse, whatever. And then there's the category of you. So I'd find which category it had to do with. And then I have charts that I go off of, of all these different emotions. It's connected to Chinese medicine where they're all these organs that correspond to different emotions. I mean, I know the very basics of it from, from the modalities I've studied, but then we would pinpoint what emotion it is, but we can also then, I mean, it's not just me doing it. Like I'm, and I have this old, this old, like the day I left spirituality and health, they, they gave me this, it was a fake cover and it was me on the front. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Which was really sweet. It said healer for a healer for the next generation. And I sometimes tell my clients, I'm not healing anyone. I'm a conduit. I've learned techniques yes. help you yes. access things that you can't see. We all have blind spots. And so these are just one way, you know, a few ways that I know to get at what's really underneath the physical pain. And so the physical pain is giving me an emotion. It's giving tying it to some category in your life. And then we can also trace it back to an earlier event when something mm-hmm. similar happened and it got kind of stuck in the body. And now it's rearing its ugly head in a way because it's trying to help you heal what wasn't healed in the past or the present. Mm. I'm very open to all of this. And what started my journey of just having a completely open mind to all this alternative way of thinking about pain was by reading Louise Hay's book, Back in the 80s, You Can Heal Your Life. And Mm -hmm. I remember simple things that she had broken down at the back of the book. If you have an earache, as an example, may not be specifically worded like that. Why aren't you listening? If you have, let's just say, you have a sore throat. What aren't you saying? Why aren't you speaking up? And sometimes I actually use that with my students. Sometimes they may come in and go, oh, you know, my throat's a bit sore today. And I say, what aren't you saying? And they just look at me. And sometimes 
it is something that they're holding back and they're not using their most authentic voice in life. But it's very interesting. Who is your typical client? Who comes to you? I have people who are in chronic pain, who have, like you you experience, like people who have developed some pain that came on out of you. Like I said, you know, it doesn't come from an injury. Or sometimes people think that like, oh, 12 years ago, I had a biking accident and this thing never fully healed. And now and then it comes back. But people for whom allopathic medicine has not worked, where they've gone to maybe like six or 12 different doctors, they've done the medication, they've tried the physical therapy and nothing's working. And they've, they're aware of the mind-body syndrome mind-body connection. Mm. There's something called tension myositis syndrome. There's a there was a doctor in New York, Dr. John Sarno. He became really famous from some of his books and his ideas around this idea. Although these ideas of like repressing your emotions are not necessarily new, even in like 30 years ago. I think we've been doing this for eons. And so that would be like one typical client. But I also see people with anxiety or depression or people who are kind of just kind of stuck in their life. I had this one client who, well, I saw his mom first and then she was like, you know, my son hasn't really been doing anything since he graduated from university. And when we started working together, it turned out that he was still, he had been hurt really badly by this girl that he was in love with. And then everything else became too scary to do because It was, he basically had generalized that rejection to then being possibly rejected by a job or possibly rejected by, so he was like, I'm going to go for a hike on this trail that goes like across the country and I won't have to see anyone. And so it was his way of being like, I don't need people. And he just, he, he enjoyed his outdoor lifestyle and didn't see the point in changing. And once we were able to heal that old pain and that old hurt of this girl, then he could start applying to jobs and move on with his life. How how old was this boy? He was 23, I think. Yes. So he had to be open to this kind of healing too. If someone's not open, does this work? Like, do you have people that come to you and go, this is too woo-woo for me? I think I had not that many people, but I've had one person, she worked at one of the big companies. I was living in Seattle at the time. She, you know, like Facebook, Google, Amazon, one of those, and she paid up front for like 12 sessions and she stopped. She just went MIA after four and I called, emailed, snail mailed, and she just refused to come back. (laughs) Okay. It was because it can be, it can be kind of intense. It can be scary. It can be like, no, I came for like, you know, pain in my jaw. I didn't come to unravel stuff from when I was 12 or 18 or whatever it is. And so some people can be like, no, that's not it. And they're very difficult to work with because they're already defensive. They don't, they don't see the point in it. They were like, this is not what I wanted. This is not what I signed up for. Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) Yes. So I try to screen for that. And I think though, that when people are really in so much pain and they are aware of like my testimonials or they know how long I've been in practice and that I help other, I've helped so many people. If you're in a lot of pain, I think you will be open to anything. Absolutely. But isn't it a shame that people have to get to that point that they don't do something about it sooner? 
usually how many sessions would people have to come to you for? Is there an average that seems to work? Yes. Anywhere between like 12 and 16 sessions, which is pretty short if you've had pain for like years and years and years. Absolutely. So for like that one issue that they have, 12 to 16 seems to be the sweet spot. Mm. Yes. And so you believe then that when we have pain, it's our bodies trying to talk to us? Yes. Our bodies and our minds. Yes. And your book, what's the story behind your book? What's the message you're wanting to share through that? It's called Pain, A Love Story. I mean, that's pretty intense. I don't know how we can be in love with pain. So tell us about the book. Well, I, I gave it that title because my belief is that when it comes down to it, our pain, whether it's emotional or physical, is tied to relationships and how we relate to ourselves, but that's all connected to how we were raised and the messages we were given when we were younger. And if we heard that it's not okay to have conflict, then as we get older, we have that same message and we fear conflict. Mm. So I think that our issues are connected very strongly to what we say and don't say how we're heard or not heard, as it is relating to the relationships, whether we're with romantic partners or platonic friends or colleagues or family. As a child, I remember I was always sick. I always had tonsillitis, pharyngitis, anything connected with the throat. And knowing what I know now, I know for sure that I was silenced as a child. I grew up in a household where children were seen and not heard. It was a very strong Italian cultural family. And so I never spoke up. And yet I always had problems with my throat. Very interesting. So looking back, I wouldn't have known that at the time. But as I've gotten older and delved into this and even reading Louise Hay's book, it just started making me think about some of the things that I went through in my life and some of the pain that I've had in my life, some of the illnesses. And I love how she calls disease dis-ease. And that's pretty much what you're saying is that all the pain that we feel is coming from an emotion or from a story that we tell ourselves, isn't it? It is. It's it's often what we're not even... Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that because I feel like now it's so it's so perfect what you do for a living. You're you're expressing through your voice and you're helping others find their voice also. Yes, and I never thought about that till probably right this moment. Isn't that interesting that we end up doing the work that we do and we seem to gravitate to that work and we know what our mission is, but now wow, it's putting it all together and wrapping it up with a bow, isn't it really? Yeah, it is. I mean, because was, there, there was that time when I was a journalist and editor in New York and I, it was on 9-11. My friend from journalism school was visiting me and I was saying like, I think there's something else I want to do, but I don't know what it is. And she started asking me about my interests and what I read when I'm, you know, doing independent reading and she was like, pay attention to that because this is the first time 
today that you haven't been concerned about what just happened. You've been like your eyes light up and it's mm-hmm. right. So it's like what you gravitate towards mm-hmm. you're in, in your doing your purpose. You're on purpose. You're you've got the calling and now you're doing it. Wow. Our childhoods actually they they do have such a great impact on our lives. And what about COVID? Has that changed your practice? It didn't because actually in 2018, I, I put, I was working at a clinic in Seattle and then I already had people, I had someone in Malaysia that I was working with and someone in Montana and someone in France. And so I was like, you know, I'm just going to put everyone online. <laughs> so oh, so you can out. do that, do it that yeah. way. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And how has your relationship with yourself changed over the years? doing all the work that you do? I've learned a lot about relationships from working with my clients, but I've also learned and I continue to learn and look at my own blind spots. And I feel like I'm a work in progress. Just And I tell people that all the time, like just because I can help you get rid of this one issue doesn't mean that your body's not going to speak to you again in some other symptom, but now you have the tools to do it. And so I feel like, I still bump up against things that are difficult. You know, I I can, and I tell my clients that too. I say like, it's very easy for me to sit here and see what you need to do, what is happening, what you, you know, like more communication skills, stuff like that. When it comes to me, I can be terrified of the very things that I'm preaching to my clients of like, it's okay to be vulnerable, but that's like, I believe that when you stretch your comfort zone, that's where you grow. People don't always grow in their comfort zone. So, and I just have to tell myself, this is, you know, to tell the truth about what I really want and desire in my life and to go after it rather than to just get comfortable and maybe get another pain in my back or something. Mm. It's so true that when we go through adversity, that's when we learn. That is the time for growth. And it's really important to appreciate that process and and not try and fight against it when we have everything and everything in life is really good we're actually probably learning the least it's when we're going through those difficult times that we're truly learning and growing as people what would you say to someone right now who's dealing with incredible pain and they're living with that pain and they're putting up with it and they truly believe that there's no help for them? I would, first of all, empathize because I've, I've had pain myself. And I and even though I've had pain, I don't know what it's like for someone else to have pain because pain is so subjective. Mm-hmm. But I would say that don't take no for an answer. Just because your medical doctor said there's no cure or this type of whatever you have, or we don't really know what's going on, there are now like thousands of modalities out there. I do a few, like there's acupuncture, there's chiropractor, there's massage, like there's something that can help you feel better without drugs and surgery. Yes. And keep going to keep looking inside yourself and to ask your body, like do some reading around like the mind body connection, read my book and just keep looking for answers because they're out there. Your body's trying to perhaps talk to you. It's even when you have an injury, and I've worked with a bunch of athletes who would have injuries, and there's something that was keeping them from healing mm-hmm. that was more on an emotional level. Like, well, if I heal, then I have to, you know, outdo my dad who got injured when, you know, with the same injury or whatever it is. Like, 
there's so many ways of accessing what your body's trying to tell you. And I know it's hard, especially when you feel like all you can focus on is the pain, but there are, there are answers out there. Yes. What you described then to me sounds like classic self-sabotage. And that goes on a lot in the singing voice community too. A lot of singers before a performance or before a recital or before a competition, whatever it might be before an exam, they have a sore throat. And yeah, it's, it's just that anxiety leading up to something can trigger a sore throat. And I think too, the part of the body that, for example, with singers, if we're going to get sick, it will always affect our throat. If you're an athlete, it's always going to be your leg or your back or the when I used to play squash, it was my ankle. It's Life is so weird like that. Our bodies are just amazing things, aren't they, really? So now in terms of someone that feels that they're not being heard, this was the story of your childhood and even your teenage years, and it sounds like probably your job as well. What would you say to that person? If they don't feel they're being heard in their life by someone important, I would say that one, there are a few exercises. One is to write a letter to this person where you don't, you don't send it, mm-hmm. but you write it all. First, you write it all out. You do like maybe a few drafts. The first draft is like, <laughs> Bring all your rage to the surface about how pissed off you are that you're not being heard or seen or whatever the issue is, and then maybe smooth it over a little bit. And then, you know, read through the parts, read through it again. Like the first one is, you know, don't even care about editing or grammar or spelling. And then you can go through again and notice where you are really sensitive, like where most of the emotions are coming out. And then do some journaling on that of like the different parts of that. And then even though you may feel like that other person is still going to dismiss you and dismiss your feelings, if you can decide to talk to them anyway and tell them that, you know, this is important because you don't want to feel dismissed, that they're an important person in your life. This is so you can have a conversation around it. If they still dismiss you, that's on them. And to remind yourself not to take it personally, because a lot of times the way people react is not, has nothing to do with us and everything to do with their own experiences in life. So there are some starting points, but it's important to voice what you're not telling yourself or the other person. And it's also important for us to become better listeners too, because we don't always listen to people, do we? We don't always listen to their needs. So it's, to consider that too, that being the person on the other end, that how can we do better to help others be heard? Yes. I was talking to a medical doctor I have in my practice, and I was explaining that even just the first year of grad school in psychology, we have like a whole year learning how to listen. Because I think that somehow in our society today, A lot of the way we listen is to think about how that other person, whatever they're saying, jogs something in our memory about us. And so it's very more like a narcissistic way of being in a relationship. Whereas if you just say like, okay, so what I hear you saying is this, and even just paraphrase, then it's a way for them to feel like they really are being seen and heard. Mm. What's the greatest lesson you've learned about yourself 
over the this whole experience and everything you've been through? That's a very good question. Um, I think like, was there that, a, is there a quality that you didn't realize that you had, or what? What were you going to say? Um, well, my previous dog, Glinda, the good dog, I named her after the Wizard of Oz, yes. uh, the witch. I can't. I I just moved in, so I'm looking for like. My favorite quote from that movie, The Wizard of Oz, is you've always had the power, my dear. You just had to learn it for yourself. Mm. And I do believe that. I had this power when I was young. We just pile on a lot of limiting beliefs and then become right about it. Like, oh, I can't do this. I can't do that because it keeps us safe. And so I think that I, one of my lessons I'm still learning and I'm still challenging myself to learn is that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to let others in because that's when they feel closer. And it's better to reach out and tell people you need help and things like that, rather than to bottle things up and pretend like you can do it all on your own. Absolutely. And it takes courage to be vulnerable. People think it takes courage to be stoic, but it actually takes more courage to be vulnerable and to feel your feelings. And that was something that I promised myself I would do once my mum passed, that if I felt like crying, I would just cry and I didn't care where I was or what I was doing and who I, I was in front of. And I can assure you, I think I've cried in front of every single student that came to my studio that first week back at work. But it really does help when you are vulnerable. It does lead to a better life. It does lead to you going through that journey in a more seamless way. What are you up to now? Well, what was that like for you when you did cry in front of your students? How did you feel? I just owned it 100%. I just 100% completely took ownership of every tear and there was no shame And my students were just beautiful. They were just so beautiful. I was very, very proud of the way they handled the moment. They all came in. They asked me how I was. No one came in pretending it didn't happen because I went back to work two weeks later and they all knew and they all asked me how I was. And we're talking about students who are between, say, 17 and 23. They all came in that they acknowledged that they knew, they asked how I was, and they all hugged me. And I thought, I'm just so proud of these young people. I'm so proud of them. That's so lovely. And that yep. and I feel like it's we we tend to be surprised by other people's reactions because I think what holds us back from being vulnerable is that we think we know how someone's going to react when we have no idea. It's just a form of anxiety this wish to control things of like, oh, I'm not going to say anything because they're going to react this way, but Mm. you don't know. No, and none of them, they all validated my feelings. No one tried to say, oh, time heals everything. You're going to be fine. I didn't get any of those cliche comments. They were all very much, oh, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like for you. How terrible. We can't believe you're back here. We just love you. It was just all of that, which I didn't expect, but I 100% appreciated. Yeah. So people can be surprising. And I thought, well, maybe this new generation coming through are nice people (laughs) after all. (laughs) 
So we're going to share all your links, including the links to your book. Thank you so much for being on the show, Serena. You've been amazing. I wish you all the best. And I know that you you are still on a healing journey. We all are. If we're being honest with ourselves, if we do believe that we have the power to heal ourselves, we'll always be healing ourselves of something. There's all, life always throws us a curveball just when we thought it was safe. But we wish you all the best. As I said, if people want to look you up, they want to read your book, they can find all the information in the show notes. We wish you all the very best and look forward to catching up sometime in the future again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Voice and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed it as now is an important time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up feeling empowered and ready to live your best life. If you know someone who will also be inspired by this episode, please be sure to copy and paste the link and share it with them. Or share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. I promise you, I am committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one every week. And if you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would also love to know what it is that you most enjoyed about this episode and what was your biggest takeaway. Please take care and I look forward to your company next time on the next episode of A Voice and Beyond.